From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Artificial intelligence, or AI, it isn't the stuff of science fiction any longer. Personal assistants like Siri and Alexa are computer programs that can actually think and can learn. Now, researchers are working on new ways to use AI in healthcare. On today's program, we'll hear how Mayo Clinic is teaming up with IBM Watson to improve patient care. Since we implemented it into the breast cancer practice in July of 2016, we have seen a about an 80% increase in our clinical trial enrollment to our breast cancer trials. Also on the program, we'll learn about a new, quicker breast cancer treatment for certain low-risk patients. And the latest research on blood-thinning medications. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. AI, or artificial intelligence. For a lot of us, I think it makes you think or imagine of, of humans being replaced by robots. And that's actually not too far from the truth. Mm-hmm. AI, or artificial intelligence, is defined as a computer system that can do things that humans require intelligence to do. Computers that can take over or actually mimic the function of our own brain. So, what does AI have to do with, with medicine? That's a good question. In the complicated world of healthcare delivery, researchers are looking for ways to use artificial intelligence to help improve patient care and make certain difficult jobs easier for healthcare providers. Here to discuss artificial intelligence and cognitive computing is Mayo Clinic oncologist Dr. Tafaya Haddad. Dr. Haddad is the physician leader for Mayo Clinic's collaboration with IBM Watson, and together they are developing a clinical trial matching program. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Haddad. It's good to see you. Great. Thank you so much for having me here. Dr. Haddad, so nice to have you. And I was glad to hear Tracy say that artificial intelligence is going to make our job easier. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody's job easier. Well, that certainly is uh, the hope with uh, artificial intelligence and especially these cognitive computing systems, not just to help make our job easier, but to make the job more efficient. Right now, we spend so much time trying to gather information from the electronic health record just to understand understand our patients and what has transpired since we saw them last, or if we're meeting them for the first time, trying to understand what are their medical conditions uh, and what brings them in today, what laboratory studies uh, might they have, what imaging studies might they have, and how can I harness all that information to provide a thoughtful consultation. Separate from that, we're also mining, you know, the PubMed, the National Library of Medicine, and trying to understand the latest and greatest research. We also look to our society guidelines. Um, For me, ASCO or NCCN are these professional uh, societies that we belong to and really define sort of the best practice um, for cancer care here in 2017. So how can we navigate all of that information in in the National Library of Medicine, ongoing active research, guidelines, our own Mayo best practice guidelines, and the patient information. How can we match all that together efficiently? Right now, it takes a lot of human hours and human effort, um, and a lot of time that we are sitting in our little workroom, you know, sometimes 20 to 30 minutes before we even go sit and meet the patient in the, in the clinical exam room. I think the hope with cognitive computing systems is that that information can be brought forward to us very quickly. 
very efficiently and that we really would just be validating the data and then having this sort of list of treatment options that may be available, whether it's standard of care, guideline-driven care, or research, um, perhaps a clinical trial and giving this patient access to the latest and greatest cutting-edge technology. So again, in one click, I can get that synopsis of the patient, her history, her medical records, um, laboratory imaging information, and marry that to our best practice as well as research opportunities. I spend less time in the workroom and more time with the patient, really getting a more meaningful encounter with the patient in the exam room. So it really does all the scut work for you. Precisely. <laughs> it's a well-trained medical student. Or res- <laughs> what is that? Scut work, why that's the menial jobs that most residents and interns do. Uh-huh. <laughs> but you really, it's very difficult to keep up in the world of medicine these days, right? And and this artificial brain helps you do that? Well, that's exactly right. You know, we are limited as as human beings, not not even physicians. We're limited as human beings in terms of how much we can remember. Um, We don't have endless capacity that computers have. You know, one example uh, that has been published, you know, looks at medical students who started medical school in 2010. By the time they're going into practice in 2020, Having completed residencies and fellowship, only 10% of all medical knowledge will be comprised of what they learned in medical school by 2020. So how we need these systems, we need help um, to make sure that we are keeping up with with the cutting edge and keeping up with research and keeping up with best practice. We, We absolutely need these systems. How did you get hooked up with IBM? I mean, it's a big thing when you come to uh, Rochester, Minnesota, because you've got Mayo Clinic and IBM, and so it's great that the two are married in this project. Couldn't agree more. You know, I I was just fortunate to be in the right place at the right time when the opportunity (laughs) presented itself, quite frankly. But um, Mayo made an investment, really, going back to uh, uh, 2013 to begin to explore uh, what is out there in terms of cognitive computing and to try and bring it into uh, the clinical arena, arena really to assess where is technology at. And, you know, to work with an industry leader like IBM uh, was certainly the rich opportunity. They had a prototype in development at that time, one of their cognitive computing uh, systems called clinical trials matching. All right. So, sorry, you say you use the word cognitive so much. And, yes. and tell uh, me and our listeners exactly what you mean by that. I mean, it's like a brain, a thinking computer. Excellent. So, so excellent question. You know, artificial intelligence really is about having an autonomous, uh, uh, human-like technolo- technological system. Cognitive computing, on the other hand, is, is really sort of a a branch of artificial intelligence, and it really utilizes, you know, the best of what computers can do, again, kind of data mining, pattern recognition, natural language processing, and develops these self-learning systems. When I look at the difference of, you know, what does it mean to me as a, a clinician, you know, artificial intelligence would say, you know, based on all this information, here is the best choice for this patient. Whereas cognitive computing systems would say, based on all the information, here is a ranked list of, of options, and, and this would be the preferred, but these are other potential options. And it really allows the physician then to do what we do best, is to take it into context with the patient's symptoms, their current functional status, things that computers couldn't possibly understand to deliver the information with compassion, things that a computer couldn't possibly do. So 
so we, we do use the phrase cognitive computing systems to really represent uh, a branch of AI that I think is more what we are using uh, right now in, in medicine, or as, as it relates to medical decision-making, at least. So where is Watson? How do you access Watson? <laughs> Great question. <laughs> Got a lab. Do you bring Watson with you? <laughs> Wandering around the hallways. <laughs> Wonderful question. You know, it is really a meeting of the minds in collaboration with IBM. So we are working with their very best uh, computer science engineers, folks who are trained in in this discipline, computer science IT experts. Um, so really, I would say we are helping IBM train Watson to understand what is relevant to I'm a breast cancer specialist, so what is relevant to breast cancer? What information do we want to have Watson focus on when Watson is reading the electronic health record? Well, if you're thinking about the cognitive thinking again, Mm -hmm. as you mentioned, you'd have the list of things someone, the doctors, would have to teach. Um, That shouldn't be number five on the list. That should be number two on the list. (laughs) And so it will only get more accurate as time goes on. That's exactly right. So, you know, one example that we learned is, you know, for our patients who have a hereditary breast cancer syndrome, they have a genetic mutation that predisposes them to breast cancer. You know, we know these BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes are important, and we wanted to teach Watson how to recognize whether or not a patient has one of these uh, genetic mutations. And it would seem very straightforward if Watson sees this, you know, he, she should have, <laughs> should be reporting it back to us. But um, there were some instances where Watson wasn't picking it up in the record, and it's because we called it uh, a mutation, or we said the patient was a carrier. We didn't say the patient was positive for this mutation. So that's the type of tweaking and training that goes into, you know, making Watson smarter and able to to recognize the information. Mm-hmm. But you're right, with it, we, each iteration, Watson does become smarter, and eventually with more data uh, and more cases and more volume, the system self-learns. It, it, we're not quite there incredible. yet. <laughs> yeah. oh, I can't wait to learn more about it. We're talking about artificial intelligence in the healthcare setting. Time for a short break. When we come back, myth or matter of fact, for healthcare providers, every hour spent with patients requires two hours in front of a computer screen. Is that a myth or is it a fact? You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are talking with oncologist Dr. Tapaya Haddad, and we're talking about artificial intelligence in the medical care setting. But first, this myth or matter of fact. Yes, myth or matter of fact, for health care providers, every hour spent with a patient requires two hours in front of a computer screen. Is that a myth or is that a fact? Do we need to make it more? <laughs> Sadly, it's true, yeah. uh, and for all the reasons you know we had we had discussed here, uh, the way that electronic health records are set up right now uh, is it's impossible to get the information you need to care for a patient, to make a treatment recommendation, or to pursue additional diagnostic studies. It takes a significant amount of time. Uh, similarly, when it comes to making those treatment recommendations, uh, we have to rely on the latest and greatest research that's published in the National Library of medicine as well as referring to you know our guidelines uh, that help define best practice so unfortunately all that time is spent in the workroom often and not in direct uh, patient care time and face-to-face time uh, that is so valuable with the patients. And we hear this from the patients, right? The patient experience in, in healthcare and medicine today is we don't get great, you know, yeah. satisfaction from they're patients. In they're out. they're yeah. in and they're yeah. out. I mean, we hear it consistently, but this is a huge part of the problem. It's not that 
we're trying to meet our quota and, and just get through the list as fast as we can. It's because we are spending time trying to get the data, the information we need to, to best care for these patients. And unfortunately, so much of that is performed behind the scenes. Do you think this has anything to do with physician burnout, all, all the extra time and the information overload and the administrative burden that we all have? Yeah, no, absolutely. And actually, Mayo-led research here uh, by, by Tate Shanafelt and colleagues really shows that time spent in in the electronic health record is is associated with burnout. And, you know, burnout is is important. It's not unique to physicians. We see this in our advanced practice providers. We see this in our nurses as well. This is not unique to the clinic or ambulatory setting. It's also, there's good research actually just recently published uh, with similar phenomena seen in hospitals as well. And, and burnout is important. It's I think when people think about burnout, they think about uh, an overworked, a tired, and exhausted doctor who who goes home and and has you know marital stress and has family stressors. Um, we know that it's also associated with higher rates of anxiety and depression in in healthcare providers, higher rates of of uh, divorce and suicidal ideation. I mean, it, it's serious, but. It also has a significant impact on patient care, more likely to be associated with with medical errors, uh, more likely to be associated with with poor outcomes for patients. So it also has a significant importance to to patients, not just to physicians, their colleagues, their environment, and and uh, their families. This all sounds a little frightening. So how is Watson going to help you solve all these problems? Yeah, so I, I, I really do believe, it, you know, whether or not it's Watson, I, there are many other wonderful cognitive systems in, in development as well. Um, I, I really do believe that this is going to be how we bring joy back into medicine, that we are mm-hmm. spending less time with what we, what's been sort of dubbed the clerical burden uh, of medicine, less time doing, doing paperwork that otherwise could potentially be um, completed by uh, by a computer system. Um, so not just the clerical burden, but also the cognitive burden. And I think that's something we don't talk about as is, is much in medicine. I don't think it's, it's hard for us to acknowledge um, to colleagues or patients that we can't possibly know it all um, with, with the growing, with the rapid expansion of, of medical knowledge. And well, research. I've always told Tracy, I pretty much know it all. I know she does. <laughs> I, I was a little skeptical at first. but um, Tell us a little bit more about the clinical trial matching program. What does yeah, that how, mean? How it, Watson's helping in your practice right. specifically. Right. So, so the Watson Clinical Trial Matching uh, System is, has been the primary uh, collaboration between Mayo uh, and IBM right now. So this uh, system uh, and this cognitive system is basically set to be reviewing uh, patient records the day prior to them coming to clinic. And again, we've trained Watson to pull out, um, again, unique to our breast cancer uh, practice right now, to pull out the key data that we need in order to help match that patient each individual patient we're seeing in clinic to our clinical trial portfolio. And right now for breast cancer, if we look at both uh, uh, our clinical trials with medical therapies as well as our phase one clinical trials, so these are much um, drugs that are earlier in development, uh, typically phase one clinical trials, when, when we we have over a hundred open active studies, and again, it's impossible for the clinician to remember uh, each one of these these clinical trials. 
So so Watson, again, knows the list of trials, knows what inclusion and exclusion criteria are necessary for a patient to be eligible and could potentially participate in a trial. And it kind of brings those two two, uh, pieces of information together, the patient, their attributes, as well as the clinical trials. And then it provides us with a list of potential study opportunities, and it takes that list of, you know, up to 105 right now. Honestly, we have about more like 26, 30 uh, clinical trials in the system, so we don't even have it at full capacity with all of our studies. Um, but it can take that list of 26 to 30 and whittle it down to, you know, two or three that how's may be it, relevant. How's it working? Well, so so what we have seen over the last, uh, since we implemented it into the breast cancer practice in July, so tw- July of 2016, we have seen about an 80% increase in our clinical trial enrollment to our breast cancer trials, and specific, specifically the 26 to 30 that we've had uh, wow. in Watson. Amazing. So, wow. so Watson reviews the patient's chart the day before you're going to see them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Watson figures out what trial, clinical trials they may be eligible for. And then does Watson make a recommendation based uh, so on a, the clinical information to help you? So it's a great question. So we do just um, to recognize the wonderful work that our, our screeners and our coordinators, our research coordinators are doing. They are, because, you know, Watson is still learning, they are validating the information in Watson to make make sure that the list of trials that comes out uh, is indeed accurate. Um, and it allows us to continue to teach and train Watson and collaborate with IBM. Uh, but yes, at the, then at the point of care, um, I am uh, given this list of clinical trials uh, that the patient may be eligible, eligible for. But Watson, again, doesn't pick the winner. That would be more the AI approach. <laughs> well, you get to pick the winner. That, <laughs> we we yeah. get to pick the winner based on, you know, you where the patient... You have some input still. Correct. <laughs> and I think that's the great part. I, I don't look at this. I'm not a that AI, you know, is going to be replacing physicians. I think this is really about augmenting uh, human intelligence and, and, and so really not artificial intelligence, but more augmenting our intelligence and ability to care for patients. So it saves you hours and hours of work. Correct. You know, his, historically, we, we didn't have any system in place. It was really just matching patients to clinical trials was done on an ad hoc basis. And, you know, I am a, a, a clinical investigator, and I know my, you know, my three to five trials really, really well, but I might not know my colleagues as well. Or another study that was written by industry, I might not know that study as well. And I most certainly can't keep up with, with the progress of new drug development in our phase one program. But I'm very engaged, and, and I know we're not going to move the needle on, on cure breast cancer uh, or cancer more broadly without evaluating these these novel therapies. And so clinical trial uh, participation and and enrollment and and recruitment is so critical, um, not just to meet Mayo's research mission, but also, again, more broadly to to really move more quickly towards our goal of curing cancer. Oh, it's all pretty incredible. We've been talking with Dr. Tapaya Haddad. She's a medical oncologist, cancer specialist at the Mayo Clinic. So great to have you here. Good luck with all your work, and go Watson. Wonderful. Thank you so much for this opportunity again. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about a new, faster way to treat some breast cancers. And later on in the show, how understanding anticoagulant blood thinner risks can help you and your doctor choose the right one, the safest one. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. All eyes will soon be to the sky as North Americans look for a total eclipse. Dr. William Brown, a Mayo Clinic optometrist, says staring directly at the sun can be damaging to your eyes. But by using specifically designed eclipse glasses, you and your family should be able to thoroughly enjoy looking at an eclipse. Dr. Brown says the only time the sun can be viewed without these proper safety glasses is during the total eclipse, that short time when the moon covers the sun completely. Other safe viewing options include pinhole projectors and the darkest welding filters, specifically welding shade number 14. Dr. Brown explains. A solar eclipse happens when the moon comes between the sun and the earth. And so in specific places on the earth, they line up perfectly. So a total eclipse is when you see the moon entirely cover the the sun. How long is it safe to look directly at the sun? Dr. Brown says it's not safe at all. Well, when you're staring at the sun, they don't have a chance to recover. And they may totally be uh, lost due to the damage that can occur from looking at the sun. Dr. Brown says those special glasses are the only ones to wear safely to view the sun. Check your local library, planetarium, or science center for approved eclipse sunglasses. And in other news, pink eye or conjunctivitis is very common, and boy, can it spread. Pink eye is an inflammation or infection of the transparent membrane that lines your eyelid and covers the white part of your eyeball. When small blood vessels in the conjunctiva become inflamed, they're more visible. This is what causes the whites of your eyes to appear reddish or pink. Pink eye is commonly caused by a bacterial or viral infection, an allergic reaction, or in babies, an incompletely open tear duct. Though pink eye can be irritating, it rarely affects your vision. Treatments can help ease the discomfort of pink eye. Because pink eye can be contagious, early diagnosis and treatment can help limit its spread. The most common pink eye symptoms include redness in one or both eyes, itchiness in your eyes, a gritty feeling in your eyes, a discharge in one or both eyes, that forms a crust at night that may prevent your eye or eyes from opening in the morning and tearing. Make an appointment with your health care provider if you notice any signs or symptoms that you think might be pink eye. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Early stage breast cancer patients now have an expedited, a much faster treatment option at the Mayo Clinic. Certain low-risk patients can have their surgery and their radiation in less than 10 days, believe it or not. The expedited treatment program combines lumpectomy surgery with a type of internal partial breast radiation called brachytherapy. Here to discuss. Well, you said it exactly right. Shaky oh, breaky therapy. <laughs> Here to discuss the expedited breast cancer treatment is the Mayo Clinic breast surgeon who helped design the program, Dr. Tina Hyken. Welcome to the program, Dr. Hyken. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Dr. Hyken. Nice here. to meet you. Nice to have you on the program, and Thank you. especially to talk about this, the ten-day breast cancer treatment regimen, and tell us about it. So, for selected women. Those with early stage breast cancer, small tumors that measure less than about an inch in size and that have the characteristics of most, most breast cancers, that is, that they're estrogen receptor positive, um, who also have no evidence of any clinical lymph node involvement, may be eligible for this approach. So localized to the, the breast. Um, sorry, go ahead. Well, and then I want to ask you, estrogen positive. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. yeah, so that's what I was going to say. Who are these specific women? You said for certain women. So what makes them eligible for this? So 
for now, we're limiting this mostly to women who are postmenopausal, those who are at about 50 years of age and older, and women who have these characteristics of a tumor where it's estrogen receptor positive. And what does that mean? And, and why these women? So these are generally women who have a lower risk of having the breast cancer come back, either locally in the breast, uh, in the regional lymph nodes, or elsewhere in the body. And a lot of evidence over many years has shown that the place where they're at the greatest risk of having cancer come back, if it comes back at all, is right there in that same part of the breast that the tumor was removed from. So women with estrogen-positive breast cancer in general have a good prognosis if you cure the local disease. Correct. So uh, tell us how you do this uh, exactly. I mean, uh, how do you uh, – you, you mentioned the criteria. Once you have uh, th- a woman like this, estrogen-positive, localized to the breast, what, what happens next? So for women who are interested in this approach, we discuss with them what this involves. So – At the time that we take them to the operating room, we remove the tumor. Our frozen section pathology group checks to make sure that we've completely removed the tumor and we're not too close. And then you could do that right while you're in the operating room. Right, you well, know right away. We know right away. Wow. Called frozen section diagnosis. Yep. Now I assume that you tried to remove the tumor plus a little bit of normal tissue. Right. Generally, what we aim for is just a few millimeters of normal tissue right around the main tumor. And then the second part is we check the sentinel lymph node. So we take one or two or sometimes three lymph nodes out from under the arm. And they also go for frozen section pathology. And if they're negative, then we can... um, those patients may be suitable for for catheter placement. Now, the part that I read said that this also includes partial breast radiation, and I don't quite understand how it can be partial. Either you're getting breast radiation or you're not. So what makes it partial breast radiation? So for this, we use a catheter. and That means a small little plastic tube. A little plastic tube. It looks a little bit when it's opened up like an umbrella that's facing another umbrella. So it has this basket-like configuration when it's expanded in the breast. And each of those little struts or each of those little arms that form part of the catheter can be used to dose the radiation. So it can be very focused um, and given exactly where it needs to be, but right at that lumpectomy cavity. So partial breast means just in that part of the breast where the breast tumor was and avoiding all the other quadrants of the breast. So you put little radioactive pellets in there after you have the catheter in, or do you do it right at, when do you do that? So we don't have to do the little pellets anymore. Now... These are preloaded. These are, <laughs> these aren't preloaded, but what happens is that um, two days following surgery, the uh, treatments would begin. So the day following surgery, the patient meets with the radiation oncologist and they do a simulation. They take some integrated CT images that show how the catheter sits in the breast and they do all their physics and plan how they're going to give the radiation. And when the radiation starts, they actually have a robot that comes into the room and attaches to each of these sources and serially uh, sends a dose in for a predefined fraction of a second in each of those ports. Oh, so it's external beam radiation directed by this catheter. It's a radioactive source that's the same as those beads were, but now it's just given as a as a source that moves in and out rather than a beads uh. having to be manually loaded in and out. Hmm. All right, and in just 10 days of radiation, or how many days of radiation? So the whole thing from the day of surgery 
till the day of completion of treatment can be done within 10 days. So the radiation protocol that we have used is five days of radiation given twice daily on weekdays. Oh my goodness. And what are the side effects of that radiation? Yeah, what's not to like? What's really nice is it's very convenient for people who work and want to have minimal disruption to their schedule. And it's super convenient for patients who live hundreds of miles from a radiation treatment facility and may forego radiation altogether. The part that uh, you mentioned, you said for now, postmenopausal women with you know that fit these certain criteria. Does that mean that you're ex- hoping to expand it out? Right. So we've been talking within our groups about expanding this to women who may be perimenopausal or a bit younger. There are some national organizations that think partial breast radiation is reasonable for women who are as young as 40 or 45, and we've been fairly conservative in selecting candidates. Uh, Now we've treated a number of women, and I think we've seen very good results, and it's time to think about expanding our patient cohort a little bit. It will be a few years, however, won't it, until you know for sure that this treatment is as effective as what you used to do, which would be external beam radiation from the outside for a longer period of time after the lumpectomy? Right. There's uh, several studies that have looked at partial breast radiation given either via catheter given via via external beam or some even starting to look with protons that target a portion of the breast. So I think the safety data will, will be out relatively soon from these clinical trials. The concerns that have been raised about external beam is that you treat a larger volume of the breast. This is really focused to the area highest at highest risk. And I would imagine the whole reason why you want to do this is so that you can preserve the breast, so that you don't have to do a removal. Right. We don't have to... Uh, remove the whole breast and do a mastectomy, and that we don't have to get the the side effects of radiation treatment to the entire breast and then to other organs. So if you look at the really uh, cool CT simulation images, you can see that the normal organs really don't get uh, very much dose at all compared to external beam where they get some. But this is really only for women with lower-grade cancers Mm -hmm. uh, that has not spread to the lymph nodes, that uh, are perimenopausal or older than 50 right now, and they're uh, estrogen receptor positive. Correct. What a great program. So. Yeah, 10 days and you're done. (laughs) Just like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I can't argue with that. Dr. Tina Hyken, breast surgeon, Mayo Clinic, Rochester, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, Dr. Shives takes over solo hosting duties, and we'll learn more about the risks of taking blood-thinning medications. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. Anticoagulants, commonly referred to as blood thinners, are used to treat or prevent blood clots, and that can reduce the risk of heart attack or stroke. Now, that all sounds good, but there are some potential side effects or potential complications of taking blood thinners. For patients taking anticoagulant medication, internal bleeding, especially in the GI tract or the stomach, is a major concern. A recent study published in the journal Gastroenterology compared several different anticoagulants and assessed their risk for causing internal bleeding. The authors did the study in an effort to help patients and their doctors make a more informed decision when choosing an anticoagulant or a blood thinner. Joining us on the phone from the Arizona campus of Mayo Clinic is the lead author of the study, gastroenterologist Dr. Nina Abraham. 
Dr. Abraham is the site director in Arizona of the Mayo Clinic Kern Center for the Science of Healthcare Delivery. Welcome to Mayo Clinic Radio, Dr. Abraham. Good to have you with us. Thank you very much, Tom. Happy to be here today. So uh, I want to ask you first, I think it would probably surprise most of us to learn how many people in this country are actually taking an anticoagulant. You're absolutely right. Um, anticoagulants, uh, specifically traditional drugs like warfarin or Coumadin, which is the, the trade name, or the new anticoagulants, apixaban, rivaroxaban, dabigatran, and adoxaban, are used by over 15 million Americans. 50. And that's one five. five. Zero. We get one five, 15. <laughs> and that's probably 50. just the tip of the iceberg because many of these patients were not taking drugs who are eligible for taking these drugs because they didn't like the inconvenience of taking Coumadin. So with these new agents, which have less inconvenience for patients, it is expected that a lot more patients will be taking these drugs going forward. Why are the new ones more convenient for people to take? Well, unlike Coumadin, which required um, multiple blood checks to make sure your drug levels were, um, were, were safe, the new agents have the convenience of fixed doses once or twice daily with no need to regularly check the blood levels. Ah, okay. Well, so that does make it a lot easier. So you don't have to regulate the medication and keep getting a blood test to figure out where you are. Correct. All right. So uh, why so many people, 15 million, why are most people taking uh, an anticoagulant? Well, the biggest bulk of those users are folks with atrial fibrillation, which is an abnormal heart rhythm, which tends to occur more in the elderly over the age of 65 and um, predisposes patients to clotting events that can lead to heart attack and stroke. But these agents now have also been approved for the treatment and prevention of blood clots in the lungs and in the legs uh, prior to orthopedic surgeries, for example, or for the treatment of folks who have clotting disorders and are at risk for these blood clots. I think I mentioned this at the top, but, but tell us why it's so important to prevent a blood clot. What can happen if you get one? Right. So it depends where the clot lands up, but if they're in the if a clot lands up in the heart, it can lead to a heart attack. Um, in the brain, it can lead to a stroke, um, and or in the lungs, it can lead to compromise of the lungs. And and also, it can actually lead to death. Right. Uh, it, Correct. Um, it's it's not a uh, as high a risk as GI bleeding, but it's certainly a significant risk. All right. So the problem is that any drug you take has some side effects, has some potential complications. Tell us about the complications with uh, anticoagulants, either the Coumadin, the old gold standard, or the newer ones. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Tom. As I like to tell my patients in the GI bleeding clinic here in Mayo, Arizona, a drug is a poison with one good side effect. (laughs) (laughs) What a good way to put it. Yeah, well, it's true. And uh, often as physicians, we spend all our time trying to manage people's side effects from drugs. And in the case of anticoagulants, the most dreaded complication is a brain bleed or a hemorrhage into the brain, a type of stroke. But that's actually a fairly rare event. What happens most commonly, up to 10% of patients who are on these drugs, is a major significant bleed in the gastrointestinal tract. And if that happens, um, the, the hemoglobin, uh, the, you know, you're obviously bleeding, and that can lead to what sort of complications? Well, uh, it can lead to a variety of complications because if you are 
bleeding out from your GI tract, you are compromising your heart, so it can lead to secondary complications such as heart attacks and strokes, Um, and sometimes it can lead to death because uh, the bleeding can be so brisk that it cannot be stopped. All right. Uh, so tell us about your study. We've learned about the, the reasons people take uh, anticoagulants. We've learned about the side effects. And, and tell us what your study was about and what you, what you learned. Well, we've been very interested here uh, about the real-world risks of these drugs. All of these drugs, old and new, have been tested in clinical trials, which are ideal settings before getting approval by the FDA for sale to patients. But often after a new drug comes out, we really only find out the impact or of adverse events or side effects um, after they've been out for a few years. Sure. So that's what we were looking to identify. Uh, we have previously studied an, a comparison between the, the gold standard warfarin and the new agents and published that in 2015 uh, with regard to gastrointestinal bleeding, which is the number one complication related to these anticoagulants, and shown that warfarin was the safer agent. Oh, but, really? Yes. Oh, okay. But, but that comes at the downside of the inconvenience. So that sure. can be a tough choice for patients. Uh, but for this study that we just published in gastroenterology, we had two questions we wanted to answer. The first was, among all the new agents, the non-warfarin agents, was mm-hmm. there a safer option with, ga- mm. with regard to gastrointestinal bleeding? Okay. And then the second question was, does that safer option uh change based on a patient's age, because our prior work has suggested that over the age of 75, the risk of gastrointestinal bleeding from any anticoagulant goes up, uh, and, but we were wondering if there was a better bad choice sure. in terms of a side effect. A better the, poison. Yeah, yeah uh, among, the, uh, among these new agents, and what was the impact of age on that patient's risk? All right, a minute remaining. What's yeah. the what's the conclusion? What's the bottom line? What what can we tell? Uh, what information can we give to our patients and their physicians who uh, are prescribing the anticoagulant? There is a better bad choice. The drug apixaban, or uh, trade name Eliquis, is the safest of all the new drugs in terms of uh, GI bleeding risk among all patients. Rivaroxaban uh, is the most dangerous with the highest GI bleeding risk. And what's the brand name of that one? Rivaroxaban. Pradaxa. Pradaxa. Okay. Okay. And then uh, among all of those agents, we saw the same pattern. As you get above the age of 75, the risk of GI bleeding increases three to five-fold. So fair to say that warfarin is still the uh, gold standard and the safest anticoagulant you can take. If you're going to take one of the newer drugs, which is much more convenient, Eliquis is probably the preferred drug. And if you're over age 75, it doesn't matter what you're taking, you're at increased risk for a GI bleed. Yeah, I would modify that statement by saying Apixaban or or uh, Eliquis is the safest of the new agents. Okay. Coumadin is probably the best choice in a patient over the age of 75. All right. Perfect. Dr. Abraham, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate Thank having you, so you with much. us. Yeah, you bet. We've been talking by phone with gastroenterologist Dr. Nina Abraham from the Arizona campus of Mayo Clinic. And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. We may answer your question during an upcoming program. 
You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.